America and freedom kind of go hand in hand, right? When we think of America, most of the time we think of freedom, from the Freedom Tower to the fact that our national anthem says that we're the land of the free, to our Declaration of Independence, which promises life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Freedom is a big deal in America, and there's pretty much at any given time some cause for freedom, some freedom movement going on. And perhaps the time in our country's history that was filled with more freedom movements than any other time were the 1960s and 70s. Riding alongside of several other freedom causes like the civil rights movement and the feminist movement, the free love movement sprang up and was concerned about loving the one you're with and all those other great songs from the 60s, right? And you see, we had just emerged from World War II and things were going really well, but not ideal for some young people who really wanted to be able to express themselves more fully, who weren't content with the American dream and the conservatism of their parents. And so they sought to break free from the shackles of marriage and state and church control and go and have their freedom to love whoever they want. Of course, that was just the starting point. And after the summer of love in 1967, promiscuity and drug use exploded. Contraception and abortion became the norm. And the call for tolerance and greater and greater indulgence grew as people sought to expand their mind in new ways. And the effects of that movement are still felt today, very strong today, as we hear the same calls for tolerance and acceptance and relativism. It's okay I don't want your standards affecting how I live my life. I I should be free to do it as long as I'm not hurting anyone else. Let me have my happiness. And that is the path that the world's concept of freedom always takes. It always pushes the limits into deeper and deeper levels of depravity and indulgence. And, and this, this isn't a new problem. This isn't something that just started happening in the last 50 years. This has been the norm throughout history. We see it over and over again. And this very issue is what Paul addressed in Galatians chapter 5 when he taught about what true freedom really looks like, what it means to truly live free. Now, if you've heard the first three sermons in this series, then you know that Paul has taken to task the world's idea of what freedom is. And he has shown that God's idea of freedom and the world's idea of freedom are in opposite. They don't align. And so as you turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, today we're going to be studying verses 13 through 15. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. And as we read these verses, we're going to see what true 
freedom is all about, what the real free love movement is all about. As you turn there, let me pray. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you so much for the privilege of speaking your truth. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me, that my words would be your words. Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts to hear your truth, that we would be able to apply it and live it out in our daily lives. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul begins by summarizing the first 12 verses of chapter 5 in one short statement that, that Christians are called to freedom, that freedom is our call. As children of God, we are called to be free. In the first sermon in this series, we look at verse 1. And in verse 1, it says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He says that we have been set free for the sake of freedom. That God wants us to live free. God, God wants us to live free. And he calls us to live free. And that's, that's where Paul takes this line of teaching. He goes one step further. He says that God doesn't only want you to live free. He didn't set you free for freedom's sake. But he is calling you, Christian brother and sister, to live free. The Greek for the word called means invited to something by someone who has the authority to give the invitation. So, let me give an example. If I have a party at my house, right, and I come up to you and I give you the invitation to that party, I have invited you and I also have the authority to invite you because it's my house. But if my parents are having a party and I go to you and I say, hey, why don't you come on out to my parents' house for the party, I don't really have the authority to do that. But seriously, I want everyone to come out to the baptism on August 25th. It's going to be awesome. They would love to see you all there. Christ has invited us to live free from the bondages of sin. And Christ is the only one who has the authority to give us true freedom. That's what Paul is saying here. So you might be thinking, okay, okay, what, what is freedom, though? What is true freedom? What does it really look like to live free? Well, I'm not going to really spend much time answering that question because the first sermon goes into that in depth. So if you're interested in the deep answer to that question, I would encourage you to go online, either watch or listen to the sermon. It goes there in depth. But here's the short answer. Are you ready? Freedom is the liberation from something. Freedom is the liberation from something. In this context, 
Paul is saying that we are liberated from the consequences of sin. We don't have to pay the eternal penalty for our sin. We've been set free of that by Jesus Christ. And contrary to what the world would say freedom is, here is what freedom is not. It is not the license to do something. It is not the license to do something. We don't have the freedom to go and live however we want. Paul underscores this point in this passage by giving us a two-part command as to how we should live free. There is a negative aspect to the command and a positive aspect to the command, a two-part command. The first part of the command in verse 13 says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Paul begins by using the term only here in order to show that there are limits, there are restraints, there are restrictions on our freedom as Christians. Specifically, we're not allowed. We shouldn't want to, but we don't have the freedom to use the fact that we have been set free from the consequences of sin in order to indulge in more sin. We can't use that freedom to give us an opportunity to sin. And the Greek word for opportunity here is actually, I I find it interesting, it literally means a staging area or base from which an army would launch an attack on the enemy. So what Paul is saying is that we can't treat our freedom from the consequences of sin as a springboard, as a launching pad to go and do whatever we want to do, to indulge in however we want to live. In Romans 6, Paul puts it this way, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Unfortunately, Christians have been abusing their freedom and trampling over God's grace since the very beginning of Christianity. In fact, there's a heretical school of thought that says that because we've been forgiven by the grace of God, we're now free to go and do whatever we want to do without consequences. This lie... And that's a lie. I want to be very clear. That is a lie. Goes by the fancy name of antinomianism. Let's say that out loud together. Antinomianism. There you go. Go impress your friends. And this word literally means against the law. Against the law. And, and from what I've seen, typically it results from poor parenting. Typically, poor parenting by the father in particular. Uh, Ackley family, I hope you're having a great vacation. I'm glad to see that you guys are enjoying yourselves. Thank you so much for posting those pictures to Facebook. They fit perfect. But seriously, what this train of thought, this idea of being able to do whatever I want to do, does is it says that 
well, no biggie. God's going to forgive me anyway, so I can just go and do whatever I want. And then they go and indulge themselves because they have God's grace and they're forgiven anyway. They trample over God's grace. It's, it's a deadly and destructive lie because someone can claim to be a Christian. They, they can say that I'm a saved child of God and yet completely ignore the moral teachings of Christ, of the one who they claim to follow. Thus, they not only deceive themselves, but they also deceive those who think that that's what a Christian actually looks like. Now, I I don't want to be heard to say that, look, he's talking about earning your way to salvation. No, I'm not. We're saved by faith alone. Let me make that perfectly clear. Faith alone is what saves us. But God's grace does not give us a license to indulge in whatever we want to do. So if you're thinking, sitting here thinking that way, you've fallen for the lie. Yes, we're forgiven. Yes, we have God's grace. But we are not free to live however we want. We don't have the license to live our way. And if you think you do, you're caught. You're trapped. You're still living in slavery. You're not living in freedom because though you think you're able to do whatever you want, you are still entrapped, enslaved to the sin that you're in. Nothing's changed. And all you're doing is living out your will instead of God's will. And this is the lie that Paul is speaking out against here. Which is why he doesn't merely give us a negative command, but he also gives us a positive aspect to the command to show us what true freedom actually looks like. So Paul continues on in verse 13, and he says, But through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. And here is when we get into the heart of this passage as Paul reveals what it looks like to truly live free. It's not about indulging ourselves in whatever we want to do. Living free is about serving others through love. The word here for love, as most of you would probably guess, is agape, which means the unconditional, selfless, unmerited love of God. But what's interesting is, in the original Greek, the English translation doesn't pick this up, but in the original Greek, Paul puts an article before love. He actually calls it the love. The love. But through the love serve one another. The specific, particular love of God. The distinctive love of a Christian. This isn't something that we can produce in ourselves that anyone can produce in themselves. It can only be produced by God as the Holy Spirit works in our life and transforms us to be more and more like Christ. And it's through that transformation, through that love, that we serve one another. So what Paul is saying here is that the only way to truly live out our freedom 
is through the power of God's love working through us. Now, this has at least three implications that I want to point out. First of all, it means that people who don't have God's love in them can't live free. Even if they wanted to, even if they wanted to truly serve someone, if they don't have God's love, they can't do it. They can't live free. But second, if you are saved and claim to know Christ, it means you should be serving others. You should have a servant's heart. Now, I know that's one of those nice little church terms that we throw around. Oh, we need to have a servant's heart. Right? Well, so what does that mean practically? What does that look like practically? Well, honestly, I can't really give you a definition, but I can ask you some questions to help you think about it in your own life. So, first question really is, how often do I actually serve others? Not because I have to, but because I want to. How do I spend my free time? My, my money? My talents? Do I use it on myself? Or do I use them for the benefit of others? What's my attitude like when I'm helping someone else? How well do I serve those who rub me the wrong way? Do I expect to get something back when I help someone else out? We could stand here all day asking these questions, right? But the reality is that service of others is one of the primary ways that the Lord refines and matures us and draws us closer to Him. And if we're not doing it, if we're not serving others, then we're probably stagnating in our faith, which really you can't do. You're either going closer to God or getting farther away from God. So you're probably falling away from the Lord. Which leads to the third implication, the last point. And this one probably hits pretty close to home for some of us. Paul shows us that anyone who is focused on themselves can't live free. Anyone who is consumed by their own desires, their own wants, their own passions and preferences is in bondage to those things. Basically, what he says is selfish people are enslaved people. Second Peter says, for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. And selfishness enslaves us. It overcomes us. And it's our selfishness deep down that stops us from serving others. So we've got to ask ourselves, am I a selfish person? I mean, if we're honest, I mean, let's be honest. How many of you here think somewhere, to some degree, you're a selfish person? Most of us raised our hands. And if you didn't, you're a liar. <laughs> so the real question then is, how selfish am I? 
right? Am I consumed by what I want, how I want it, when I want it? How willing am I to share what I have? How do I react when someone asks me to help them or when I see someone else in need? How willing am I to sacrifice my comfort and my stability for someone else? Do I only help people when it's convenient for me? Or am I willing to go out of my way to do so? Do I only help the people who I like and kind of ignore the rest? Now, you may be hearing these questions. You might be telling yourself, well, I'm really not that selfish. Well, then, here's the real challenge. Take that list and give it to someone else and have them answer the questions for you. Someone who knows you, someone who's going to tell you straight, Maybe a family member who has really seen you at your best and worst. And you'll probably be surprised at the areas where they point out your selfishness because typically we're blind to it. I mean, we know it's there somewhere, but where? Because how selfless we are, selfless, and how well we love others is probably the best test of how well we live out our faith. Not how often we read the Bible, not how much we pray, or how much we give, or how many Bible verses we can quote, or how often we go to church. I mean, those things are good, but those really aren't the test of our faith. The true test of our faith is how well am I loving others? And and this is exactly what Scripture says. In 1 John it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God, who does not love, does not know God, because God is love. So here's the bottom line. Selfish people are enslaved people And they probably don't know God very deeply. They haven't tasted very deeply of God. Why is that? Well, our selfishness is just evidence of a void, of of an emptiness that we haven't allowed the Spirit to fill. Either by rejecting Him outright or just keeping Him out of, of those certain areas of our life. Selfishness is an emptiness. On the other hand, when we have the Holy Spirit working in us and transforming us and producing God's love in us, and as we press deeper into our faith and know God more intimately, the Spirit is going to produce love in our life and that love is going to overflow. That love is going to fill us. And and it's going to be there in abundance so that it pours out of us. And the way it does that is through service to others. That's why Paul says that it's through love that we serve one another. It's through the fullness, through the outpouring of that love 
that we can serve others and truly live free. Now, I know that the reality is that we're all selfish. We already went over that. So the practical question is, how selfish? Am I growing less selfish? As the Lord works in me, am I growing less and less selfish? As Christians, there should be evidence of the Holy Spirit working and filling us to the point where our selfishness has a weaker and weaker hold over us. That that void becomes filled with the love of God. And depending on whether we live free in love or live in bondage to our selfishness, Paul shows us that there's one of two consequences that we'll experience. The first is the positive consequence. In verse 14, Paul writes, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we love one another and we serve each other, we fulfill God's law to us. Well, well, hold on a second there, Matthew. Hasn't Paul just been teaching in the first 12 verses that we're not under the law anymore? I mean... He's been speaking out against the Judaizers who were saying that you had to be circumcised and you had to follow the law in order to be saved. So what's Paul doing bringing the law into this? Well, it's true that we are set free from the law by the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled the law and we are no longer required to keep the law. Faith alone saves us. Christ has done away with the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law, but the moral law is still in effect. Not for purposes of salvation, but for purposes of living the life that Christ would have us lived. I mean, Jesus summed it up himself in John when he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So when we live free in love and serve one another, we're living out the commands of Christ. We are living in accordance with the moral law and we are pleasing the God who saved us. So we don't do out of some legalistic obligation. We do it because we love the one who loved us. You know, the Greek word for serve, in verse 13, it literally means to be a slave. To make yourself a slave to someone. And it's written in a tense that means that we need to do it over and over again. We have to have a lifestyle of serving others, making ourselves a slave to others. It's the same word that's used to describe a bondservant in the Roman times. A bondservant was someone who willingly submitted themselves to slavery, who put themselves under a master because that master was a good and loving master and they knew that that person would protect them and provide for them. 
We are to make ourselves bondservants of Christ. And the service that he would have us perform is to others. That we would love others. That we would make ourselves a slave in our service to them. So, so what Paul is saying here is that if we are to truly live free, then we should put ourselves in bondage to others. How's that for a paradox, right? I mean, whew. And so now we begin to see why it's only possible to have true freedom through Christ and the love that he puts within us. Because I, I don't know about you, but I mean... I don't really like to be a slave. Who wants to be a slave, right? And that's the beauty of freedom through God's love. It moves us to want to do something that is completely contrary to our selfish nature. When I was in high school, grooming myself was not very high on my priority list. I mean, I was clean, I would... I would brush my teeth, and hygienically I was fine, but brushing my hair or, you know, ironing my clothes, eh, whatever. So consequently, I had a pretty awesome unibrow. I mean, look at that thing, right? Pretty much one eyebrow. And I had lots of people tell me, hey, you should kind of maybe... Pluck that thing off, shave it off, get rid of it. It's pretty hideous. But I have to admit, I kind of, I mean, it was my look. It was, it was a pretty good look. Well, one day, I met this cute little lady named Leslie Myers. And despite my grooming habits, she really couldn't resist my manly charms, and we, despite, we started dating. And we dated all through high school, and we went off to college, and we eventually got married. And as you can see from my wedding picture, I was still rocking the unibrow on the wedding day. But I will point out that I did comb my hair, so there was some improvement. Well, after we were married a short time, we were sitting in a little love seat together, staring longingly into each other's eyes or something like that. And she said to me, you know, Matthew, it might be nice if you wore two eyebrows. <laughs> now, it didn't take me to be married very long to know that that was really code for, you better go get rid of that thing or else. So, I went and I plucked my eyebrow. Now, why did I go and pluck my eyebrow? Why did I do it? Because I love my wife, right? And despite my selfishness, despite my desire to keep that sweet look, I went and I got rid of my unibrow, and yes, I still pluck my unibrow even to this day. The point here is that God's love moves us in ways that we never otherwise would move on our own. It helps us to get rid of our selfishness and love others. Through love, we're able to do things we never otherwise would do. 
course, Paul closes by showing us a picture of the negative consequences of living in bondage to our selfish desires. He writes in verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now the words bite, devour, and consume, they're all Greek words that were used to describe the behavior of wild animals. And they were typically used when they were fighting each other over food, when they were trying to fill their empty stomachs. Now remember, Paul's talking to the believers in the Galatian churches here, right? He says, brothers, in the verse right before this. He's talking to Christians. But this is exactly what selfishness does. Remember, selfishness is the evidence of an absence of God's love. It's a spiritual emptiness. Whereas God's love fills us and overflows within us, causing us to serve those around us, selfishness causes us to fight and devour one another, trying to fill that void with anything we can get our hands on, trying to get rid of that emptiness within us, even if it means our fellow Christians. And instead of showing the world the love of Christ, which is what Jesus said to do, right? They will know you are Christians by how well you love one another. We allow our selfish nature to consume us and control us, and we end up destroying our witness to the world, and we cause division within our body, within the church body. Norman Bartlett put it this way, Mutual depreciation is as destructive as mutual appreciation is constructive. The church that does not keep the peace will go to pieces. Alas, when the members of any church pray on one another and do not pray for one another, praying and praying cannot coexist. Of necessity, one must yield to the other. Unfortunately, Many of you know the danger of this through firsthand experience. You've been the victims of church splits or broken fellowship. And at the heart of that is always selfishness and unwillingness to yield and love. This is why Paul cautions us to watch out, to beware of the selfish tendencies that are within ourselves, within every one of us. We've got to remain vigilant. Otherwise, our selfishness is going to tear us all apart. And you know, God hates, hates disunity. Proverbs 6 goes so far to say that the person who causes disunity is an abomination to God. An abomination, that's pretty strong language. So Paul shows us that when we allow our selfishness to go unchecked, destruction and disunity are the inevitable result. And you know what? That disunity and destruction is exactly what happened in the free love movement in the 60s. Eventually, people took the idea of free love and twisted it further and further into their own selfish conception of what it should be. 
This caused the movement to ultimately implode and splinter into several other smaller freedom causes and groups who wanted to expand their mind in new ways. But you know what? An interesting thing happened. Out of the collapse of the free love movement emerged the Jesus movement. And people began to see what it meant to truly have free love. That Jesus Christ's love was the only thing that could free them, that could possibly set any of us free. And the Jesus movement spread from the West Coast to the East Coast and around the world as many of the hippies who formerly sought to serve their selfish ways found that true freedom came through loving and serving others. And I know that there are several people in this church who came to know Christ in the free love movement. And that is what God is calling every one of us, what he is inviting every one of us to do today. To stop indulging in our own selfish pursuits and allow God's love to transform us into willing servants of others. I mean, if you're like me, when God points out my selfishness, it makes me sick. Does it make you sick? I mean, how many of you want God to show you your selfishness and get rid of it? I wasn't planning on doing this, but for those of you who want to get rid of it, just stand up. Stand up. Don't stand up because everyone else is standing up around you. All right? Stand up if you really, truly are sick of your selfishness. Because we're not free to live for ourselves and do whatever we want. We're free to serve Christ and love others. And we can't get caught in the lie of the present day free love movement. The lie that says life is all about loving myself. We have to be set free by the ongoing Jesus movement and love others as Christ loved us. Let's live free in love. Amen? Let's pray.